clever ball to Silva. Drew and Devon. Extraordinary. From 3-2 down to 4-3 up in the blink of an eye. And here's Fornaroli. Fornaroli tries to bend it. He opted for precision instead of power. He knew exactly what he wanted to do and he executed it to perfection. That is the quality of Bruno Fornaroli. It is an exquisite goal. Up against Kyle Walker. Kulisevsky! It's another equaliser! 20 seconds to go of normal time. The belief this Tottenham team is to be admired. They never accept the defeat. Welcome to the global game for Paramount Plus. The A-League is where stars are made. Every round, every game, live only on Paramount Plus. Here are your hosts, Alex Brosk and Simon Hill. Yes, hello again. Good to have you with us for the latest edition of the global game. Two hours of football chat to come. And once again, there is plenty to discuss. We'll look back on round six of the A-League men's, including Bruno Fornaroli's Worldie, a crazy game in Campbelltown, and a great advert for the competition in Brisbane. Wellington Phoenix are top of the shop. Should we be surprised? We'll ask... Knicks defender Scott Wooten about their great start. Alicia Carnabas on the Matildas hammering at the hands of Canada and what needs to be done for game two of the series. Spencer Pryor on another weekend of controversy in the Premier League on the field and a new huge TV deal off it. We'll begin our countdown to January's Asian Cup by looking at Group A of the tournament in Qatar and Paul Williams on the retirement of an Asian great Shinji Ono. It's all to come between now and 10 o'clock on The Global Game, right here on SEN. Yeah, great to have your company again this uh, Tuesday evening. Simon Hill and Alex Brosk in the chair, along with Alex Molchanoff as well. Good evening, gents. How are we? Good how are you? Very good. Uh, Brosky, uh, Sydney FC back after their 3-2 win over oh, Perth? Oh, not well, I wouldn't say back. It, it was a good win. There's a long way to go still before they're at their best. But I, I'm, I'm liking what I'm seeing so far under Ruffy. Building block one. Mm. Talking of <laughs> beloved clubs, uh, oh. Sydney FC are Broski's beloved. You have two beloveds, Alex Moltinoff, Sydney FC and Sheffield United. They've sacked Paul Eckenbottom. Mm. What's going on? There's trouble at Mill in well, Sheffield. <laughs> what's going on? We, our players aren't good enough for the yes. Premier League. That's what's going on. Chris Wilder's a terrific manager. He's already fallen out with the ownership once, and now they <laughs> want to bring him back. So mm. that's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. I uh, suspect it might end in relegation, Simon. Is uh, he the man? Long term? Uh, I mean, the club are set up in a different way now. And for all the good Wilder did in getting the team promoted, once we were up there and we'd had that good season, he got three or four signings badly wrong. Mm. Um, and I think that catalyzed a lot of it and actually set us up 
um, to be in the situation that we're in now where we're short on money. So um, my short answer is no, as much as I'm appreciative for the job he did the first time around. Interesting. Any Blades fans out there got any opinions? Then you can give us a call, 1300 011170, or any other topic, of course. You can text us 0457 736 736, or you can tweet us at Global Game SEN is our handle. Let's get things started, though, with Starter for Five. So here we go, Broski. Question one: The Matildas and Tony Gustafsson fully deserving of the criticism they copped, or it's only a friendly? It's time the backlash stopped. Um, oh, look, probably not the Matildas themselves, but Tony Gustafsson absolutely, um, definitely deserved. I mean, yes, there've been calls for him to experiment a bit more and use these windows to bring in new players, but not all of them at once. Uh, I feel like um, you know. After the game, he came out happy to take all the criticism on it, um, you know, because he wants to protect his players. But in throwing them all in when they haven't played uh, alongside each other um, before, I mean, you know, as a coach, there's no you protection there. You thought there were too there, many right? in together. Too many changes, um, which, you know, we're talking, they're playing against the top 10 side in the world. Um, you know, it, it wasn't a a game against some of the Asian opposition we've seen recently where probably those matches you you could have uh, given a bit more, made a few more changes. Um, You know, he's done it before last year and they copped seven against Spain. So if he's trying to protect the players, against Canada's probably not the game to... uh, to make so many changes. More to come on that with Alicia Carnavas a bit later on in the show. Matt McGurr has uh, tweeted us, not a question, but can we just stop the Matildas versus Socceroos debate about who's better and just get behind the game in this country? Yep, I think that's mm-hmm. pretty fair. Uh, question two, Mulchi, modular stadiums, the way forward for football down under or it'll never work as building regs will tear it asunder? Well, I tend to think it is the way forward. The worry, as you put there, is whether our uh, state governments will let it happen. One, because of their terrific relationships with a lot of the companies that build these the, the big stadiums, um, but also as we love to legislate in Australia. So mm. if they're not up to, up to scratch and, you know, it's still early in the technology, so there will be uh, teething problems early in, in the early iterations of them. So I, I tend to think, perhaps pessimistically, that perhaps some state governments are going to err on the side of caution here and perhaps put a handbrake on it for us. Mm. I did a big rant, of course, about stadiums and pitches last week on the show. Um, it's I don't know whether it's prompted this, but it's certainly happening. Um, a Twitter account or an X account, I get so confused with that. I wish they'd change it back. At uh, FundFooty is the address. They've started, or he's started, or she started, a an e-petition uh, for uh, the council, the local council, mm. and also for the state government to try and get Perry Park, re- Perry Park redeveloped into a modern boutique stadium. I would encourage everybody that can to go and vote and promote and support that e-petition. Mm. And let's put some pressure on the powers that be to get Perry Park a proper home for football in Brisbane. Uh, Question three, Broski. Are Wellington Phoenix the real deal? Yes, they deserve to be at the summit, or no, it's just a matter of time before they plummet. 
Um, look, I definitely don't want to be uh, going on the negative side. I, I, I don't think... Uh, look, I think there's plenty more to come from, from them. Uh, but in saying that, the fact that while they're getting there under a new coach, they're sitting top, I mean, they've got to be happy with that. So, you know, there's certainly teams playing better football that probably would deserve to be top of the table. But, um, you know, they're, they're, they're grinding out results, mm. doing what they got to do while they build into where they want to get to. So at the moment... Um, that they're on merits. Exactly mm. right. Yep, they're doing well. More to come on the Knicks later in the show. We've got Scott Wharton on the global game. Question four, Mulchi. The National Second Division impasse in Queensland. Time for Football Australia to wield the big stick or protecting the integrity of the state pyramid is my pick. How about, how about <laughs> I'll throw you under the bus well, there, exactly. I? How about the Australian pyramid would be my short answer <laughs> to that. Um, yeah. Two clubs that are outside that at the moment are the two main hopes for a Queensland entrance entered into the NST. The fact is, if they're part of that, then they need to be part of the Queensland State Pyramid if they're relegated. Absolutely. It's, it's as simple as that. And if Football Queensland can't find a way to make that happen, they, they need to be read the Riot Act. I have to say, I agree with that. And I understand that, you know, the, the Brisbane United um, set up of course, technically, is sort of like a franchise, isn't yep. it? Which, um, you know, a lot of people are against, but... Uh, Queensland needs a team in the National Second Division, and it's one of those two at the moment. Yep. They're the ones that stuck their hand up. And question five, Broski, let's finish off with this one. Bruno Fornaroli is in great form at the moment. Take him to the Asian Cup or to select a 36-year-old shows our striking stocks have nothing coming up. Well, probably both, given how soon this tournament is rolling around. I mean, it comes uh, it, next month. We've got a tournament that we want to go there and win. So, I mean, Arnie doesn't really have time to find that next, um, you know, regular goal scorer that we've been crying mm. out for. So, at the moment, he needs to pick players on form. Um, and hard to argue against picking him. I mean, mm. he's in great form. He sure is. He's someone who can... I mean, the goal that he scored... He, he's got two goal of season contenders uh, already. already. Yeah. <laughs> and he, picked it up. he made in. the run out wide, picked it up with nothing on, no one around him, and just created something out of nothing. Yeah. There's not many players, uh, Australian strikers, that could do that. Mm. Okay, if you've got any thoughts on uh, any of those topics or anything else, 1300 01 1170 is our number, or you can text us 0457736736. We're off to a break on the other side of it. We'll look back at round six of the A League men's. Time for our A League round in review. Thanks to Paramount Plus. Don't miss the superstars of the A Leagues on Paramount Plus. Broski, let's uh, start with that two all draw between Brisbane and the Wanderers at Suncorp on Friday night. I thought it was a super game of football on a, a tricky pitch after all the rain and the concerts, of course. Uh, and I guess it was the sort of the cliche game of two halves. Brisbane played some great stuff for me, but the Wanderers just have such resolve. Look, they do. It's, it's not the first time they've um, they've come from behind. Two goals as well. They did it against the Jets. So, mm. look, they, they've definitely got that in them. I think the concern for them, this is a second away game where it sort of happened as well. You, you don't want to give up an early lead and be chasing. I mean, after 15 minutes, it was it was 2-0, and then you're on the back foot the whole game. So, definitely something, um, you know, concerning there for Roods and, and, and how he um, gets his team starting a lot better. But the fact they're able to come back and they've just got quality all over the pitch where... Uh, even with Borello out, you know, they can find a goal whenever they need to. And, and for the roar on the other side, I mean, just continuing to play great football. Everything that, you know, Aloisi said he wanted from this side, we've seen. It's been great. Um, some people are saying they're not getting enough credit, or some Raw fans in particular, for, for their start to the season. Is that fair? Well, not really. I mean, everyone that I've heard has 
given nothing them. but yeah. glowing, you know, praise exactly on, on how they've been playing. And they have been fantastic to watch. The pregame, after the game, all the questions are, are super positive. Um, so, look, I don't know what they're reading, but I think it's been all, you know, good when it comes to the rule. Okay. Wanderers still unbeaten. Good to see Shea Cahill getting his debut as well. Goodness me, doesn't that make you feel old? Uh, Western United nil. Wellington Phoenix won at Mars Stadium in uh, Ballarat. We're going to hear from the Phoenix point of view uh, via Scott Wooten shortly on the show. Um, I want to ask you, though, about Western United, Broski. Um, are you concerned about where they're headed? I mean, they started the season so well without winning against Melbourne City, but uh, since then, it, the, the wheels have well and truly come off, haven't they? Completely, and it's it's hard to see why. I mean, look, I think on the weekend uh, specifically, that there was just a lot of wasteful finishing that, that really hurt them. You know, I mean, um, I mean I'm not big on stats, but I did notice an interesting one heading into this game when you looked at both teams. So the expected goals, um, Wellington. Don't tell me you've got into XG as well. I did, because I found this interesting. <laughs> They're both at the bottom, right? Wellington and Western United both at the very bottom. So Western United's a 6.5 and they've only scored three, mm. which tells me they're not obviously scoring as much as they should be, whereas Wellington on the flip side, only five and have scored nine. So that's where when you look at the ladder and see Wellington up there and, mm. and you ask, you know, are they going to fall off? They're probably higher than what it's suggested they should be, given performances, given stats like this, but they're there, right? Well, so the game against Melbourne Victory, they didn't have a single shot. No, well, exactly <laughs> right, and still got a point. So, yeah. but for Western United, it's it is that. I, I think. Um, look, when you look at who they've got, Wales, Bodich, Rukovica, there's a bit of everything there. There's some pace. There's some quality on the ball. Good finishing. Yeah, you got Pena behind them, Denzaki. More than enough quality. There's um, goals in that team, isn't there? Definitely it? goals, but yeah. they have been wasteful. They get in those positions and really just not, not giving enough. And then, you know, they concede too easily on the other side. Sorry to keep banging on about stadiums, but uh, there was a question of offside for the winner, scored by Ben Old with 10 minutes to play. Is there a problem using VAR in oval stadiums where the camera angles aren't ideal? And again, you know, Western are trying to move into this training ground as well in Tarnit, which uh, will be certainly better than the travelling roadshow that we've had for the last uh, two or three seasons, but still no set date. It, it's important for them to have a home, isn't it? Or at least a regular home ground. Of course it is. And it's concerning that after a couple of seasons, they still don't have one, you know, and, and no one's been made to answer for it. Um, there's been no punishment at all. That That's what blows my mind more than anything, especially when you consider, you know, we're talking expansion again and clubs coming in. Clubs that come in need to provide and give something extra to the league. Um, and if you don't have a home ground, that has to be the minimum, mm. absolute minimum, that you've got a base where all your fans can go to and start to develop that, that following. So it's been years now that they don't. Um, so no surprise, really, I guess. Well, it is going to happen um, this season, but just a matter of when. Uh, Sydney FC, of course, have returned back to Allianz Stadium. Here you go, Broski. You can go off. Your former <laughs> club, three, Perth Glory, two. Maybe a little bit more uncomfortable than it should have been at the end on a, a night when uh, the biggest participator was the lightning and the storm. <laughs> so we thought we were going to be there till Sunday morning. Yeah, we almost were. It was uh, it was a long night, but um, look, for the fans that, uh, that braved through it and stuck around, and we saw the co-fans taking their shirts off throughout the whole thing, which was uh, good to see. It was, um, yeah, in the end, 
uh, you know, I, I guess justification for having stuck around. But it was a bit nervy at the end. And look, I'm, I'm not overly surprised. I did catch up in that sort of break with Uffi and, and ask him how things are going. And, and um, look, he's he's not surprised with uh, the fact that at times they they're a little bit flat. Um, due to how much he's got them training. You know, the style of play that he wants he's to play. He's pushing them hard, isn't he's he? He's pushing them yep. very hard, you know, and, and he's saying that the ones that can keep up are the ones that he wants to, uh, you know, start giving minutes to and he's going to start playing, which is which is great. Um, you know, you want players in the style as a coach that you're trying to implement to keep up. And if they're not if they're not able to do it, doesn't matter who the name is, then see you later, you know. So I'm, I'm excited about, again, where where this squad is going under Rufi. Um and for Perth, I mean, they're, they're away woes continue. Played four, lost four. Incredible. We spoke yep. to uh, Alan Stagic before the game, and he said it's just a, you know, it's only an issue if you let them be, and it's all a mental thing. But okay, but you that's, can't ignore those well, facts. Well, that's telling can you? you then that there's yep. there's a there's an attitude or mentality problem there when they jump on a plane because they're a completely different side. So something that they need to work on. Yep. Uh, Mariners two, Melbourne victory two, an entertaining game. On Sunday afternoon, victory's fourth consecutive draw, which uh, must be very frustrating for Tony Popovich. That uh, goal of the season contender from uh, Bruno Fornaroli, Nishan Volupale, adding another beauty just after the break. But uh, uh, the defence got itself into a spot of bother and Mariners managed to get a point, which, uh, I mean, they'll probably take, given that they were in AFC Cup action as well just a, a few days earlier, albeit at home against Tirangano. Yeah, I mean, you've you got to feel somewhat for the Mariners. I mean, not only have they lost the players that they did, but, you know, they're in playing in Asia as well at the moment. And it's it's difficult. All the travel, the midweek games, it's hard enough when you've got enough depth. I, I don't feel like they have. Um, and they're playing a lot of players uh, in, in both competitions. And, you look, the fact that they're able to, you know, continue going, they're not doing well by any means, obviously, and far from the championship squad we saw last year. But it has been a tough season. So, look, I, I don't tip things to change to be honest I think it's going to continue to be a difficult season for the Mariners um, just based on as well they haven't really replaced the quality that they lost um, you know well enough for me so for the victory four draws in a row again concerning some of them and the way they happened as well um, you know leading the game leading early and then you know not really being able to kill the game off uh, would be frustrating for Popper, for sure. Uh, Melbourne City had to replace a lot of talent that left during the off-season as well. They've had a slow start to the season, but they beat the Jets 2-0 at McDonald Jones Stadium in the Sunday twilight game. And some of their off-season acquisitions, I mean, I've been impressed by Tolga Arslan right from the off, but some of the others, Marin Yakolish uh, was was very good, I thought, of the weekend. Hamza Saki, uh, Samuel Suprayan, they're all starting to play... Yep their part. It feels like they're starting to settle a little bit under Aurelio Vidmar. Yeah, they are. And I don't think um, Melbourne City have, have really uh, had the change in terms of foreigners like this year. They've you know brought in four new ones and, and it is going to take time for sure. But I mean, you mentioned Jakulic there and the pass that he gave for that f- um, first goal was to find... Uh, great moment for Ben, ben Mazzeo. Exactly yeah. right. It was great. But the ball itself to put it on a platter for him. He had a lot of work to do. I mean, it was a, it was a long pass um, and had to guide the header in. But great, uh, great header. And you just can't give City presence like that, you know, if you're the Jets. And um, it was a lazy back pass that started it, put them under pressure, gets turned over, and it's a goal for City. So for the Jets, um, yeah, a lot to work on still. And I know Robbie Stanton mentioned last week in their derby that, you know, they were flat as well because of the hard work he's putting them under. And 
it was another um, you know flat performance from them, and with Stamatolopoulos not being out, I mean they didn't really trouble City at all. They've got a tough trip uh, to Wellington Phoenix, the current league leaders this weekend as well. Uh, talking of the Jets, uh, big Jets fan Matty has sent us a text, 0457736736. Evening, lad, says Matty, love the Tuesday nights, listening to you guys. Bit of a rant about my beloved Jets tonight. On the weekend, the players appeared to lack any desire on the pitch. Some of the defending was schoolboy stuff. As the years go by, the connection between the club and community is growing larger. A frustrated fan base dwindling. I don't know why we can't play out of the number two sports ground and create an atmosphere. I just hope there's some owners in the works because the club is going backwards. It's so sad to see. Um, I don't necessarily say I agree with all those points, but uh, you know they are certainly issues that a lot of Jets fans are raising. Andy Harper raised a fair few of them in the post-game show as well for the on-pitch stuff. And of course, we covered the stadium uh, stuff in detail uh, last week. But do you, do you empathise with Matty and the Jets fans? Uh, do you see a, a strategy for them going forward at the moment? Well, like you said, not unless a, a new owner uh, takes over the club, because at the moment, um, you know, it's been... That's the key, isn't that it? That is the key. Once someone comes in and has his vision of what he wants the club to be and then can connect it back with the community, then that'll change. But at the moment, um, I, I, yeah, I, I feel for him, I feel for all the Jets fans, because it is a proud club, a proud community there and they really get behind their teams when there's someone there that cares about them uh, which there isn't at the moment Stick with it Matty Three second thin mate, that's what fans have to do Uh, Final game was on Monday night I call this one MacArthur 4 Adelaide 3, an absolute crazy night in Campbelltown Uh, The balls were so good in the first half and really should have been clear uh, Valère Germain with his first goal in Campbelltown. Matt Miller with a super finish from Ulysses Davalou who's outstanding again. Uh, how Adelaide got in at 2-2 at the break, I've no idea, but they did. And then they, were, they go 3-2 up in the 82nd minute and end up losing. And Carl Viet Broski was cooking at the end. <laughs> and Crazy. Look, understandably so. I mean, you, you're playing away from home. Um, you know, you, you do well enough to get yourself in front. And in the last 10 minutes... Um, you know, he's, he was upset at the desperation that or lack thereof, yeah. um, you know. And again, you, you can understand that, you know. You're away from home. You're winning 3-2. The way that equaliser came was off a set piece. And, and from nothing, their own set piece turns into a 2 a 3v1 against. I mean, that can't happen. And then the fourth goal, which was the winner by Davila. Again, just no desperation there. So th- those things, as a coach, they're coach killers, you know, because you, you set your team up to play a certain style. They're playing well. They're scoring goals in attack. They look great, but then defensively, you have to have a bit of a bit of muscle and a bit of um, you know desire when mm. it when it when you need it. A little bit of credit to MacArthur as well. Oh, Mr. Jovski's done a, a super job in turning yeah. that club around. Of course, they finished bottom last season. And uh, I know it's only baby steps, but uh, a little bit of a pat on the back as well for the fans. The, the bullpen are trying to grow the atmosphere at Campbelltown. The crowds are small. They need to get much bigger. But there's, the semblo- there's something brewing there you sense. The chants were going on Monday night against Adelaide United. Well, and wind, hopefully help. those numbers will grow. Yep, winning certainly helps. There's no doubt about that, but it's not everything as we know. Otherwise, Brisbane Raw without Ange Postecoglou in 36 games unbeaten will be getting 25,000 every week, and it doesn't happen. So it's not all about winning. It's about building that 
connection emotionally with the supporters. Uh, thanks, Broski, for the moment. That was the round in review. Thanks to Paramount Plus, the A League, where stars are made every round, every game, live only on Paramount Plus. Coming up this weekend on Friday, it's the Mariners against Western and Perth against Melbourne City, a double header on Friday. Same on Saturday, Wellington against Newcastle, Sydney against MacArthur, and then on Sunday, it's Adelaide United against Brisbane at the three o'clock kickoff. And then the wondrous Melbourne victory at five. That will be quite some game. We're going to talk to the Wellington Phoenix defender, Scott Wooten, next after this break. Our A-Leagues interview of the week, thanks to Paramount Plus. Don't miss the superstars of the A-Leagues on Paramount Plus. And our special guest this week on the back of their superstar to the campaign is Wellington Phoenix defender, Scott Wooten. Evening to you, Scott. How are you? Hi, Simon. Hi, Alex. Um, oh, very good. Thanks, fellas. Um, as you can imagine, things are very positive so uh, yeah now feeling good and um, looking forward to the next game It's great to have you on the show uh, so six games played four wins two draws back to back clean sheets which I'm sure uh, delights you as a defender uh, not many would have tipped you to be in this position certainly not over this side of the ditch so what's the reason behind your excellent start do you think um, I think it's a, it, there's a number of things really um I think obviously the first things first, you have to look at the impact of, of the manager and, and what he's brought to the table. Um, very calm and influence. He, he's made the, the the young players especially feel very relaxed and very welcoming in, into the into the team. Uh, I think Adam Griffiths has had a huge impact. Um, the assistant coach that that um, chief he brought in, um, his, his attention to detail, the way he sets us up defensively has been top draw. I don't think I think he. Um, Western Sydney Wonders, who we worked with last year, had the best defensive record, and you know it's no surprise that that we've we've started really really well defensively, um, down to a lot of his work, and and then it's obviously the players, the players are doing the business on the pitch, um, you know as you guys know, it's, you can do any sort of tactics or all of that side of things, but ultimately it's the eleven players or the fourteen, fifteen players who play, they have to um, carry the mantle and, and do the business on the pitch, and so far so good. They, the only thing for me is that you know it's only six games yet. It's a great start, but you know it's a 27 game season this year, and we've got to maintain this now. Yeah, are we going to win every game? No, but you know we've got to we've got to maintain these levels of consistency and, and try and do it for as long as possible. And your three away games uh, have impressed me in particular. Um, two of those were against Wanderers and, and Victory, where you really had to dig in to get those results. Uh, generally, I mean, at home, you, you guys play a bit more free-flowing in terms of creating chances, whereas uh, away from home, again, you've really dug, uh, dug deep in those results. Is there a, um, you know, a difference to the way you approach your home and your away games? No, it's not something we, we deliberately speak about uh, going into the games. We want to try and play play the same way, but you know, there's, there's different sort of moments within all the games. I think you touched on there, uh, Melbourne Victory and Western Sydney Wonders are, are going to be two of the strongest teams in the league for sure uh, this year. So you'd almost know going into the game that they're going to have spells where they dominate the ball, they're going to control the game, and then that's where you need to decide where you need to, like you say, dig in, uh, be resolute, show a lot of resilience. The whole team needs to work defensively and you know the likelihood is, especially when you're going to these grounds, you're going to have less moments to attack and and you know dominate the game with the ball. Which again, we've, I think we've shown that we're we're pretty comfortable with that. We can defend well, we defend well as a unit, and like you say, we've shown that grit in them, particularly those two away games. 
I guess it helps, Scott, when you have a goalkeeper that's in career-best form. I mean, Alex Paulson has been unbelievable so far this season. Uh, you've played in front of a few goalkeepers during your career. How far can this kid go in the game, in your opinion? Yeah, he's had a great start. He was um, sort of like his number one career. Uh, I think the first year I come, a couple of years ago now, he had a, he had a few games um, right at the start. Uh, when Oli Sayer was injured, then he, he obviously had a frustrating year last year when, when Oli was in, in decent form and uh, he was the number one. Um, and he, like you say, he's made an unbelievable start, really. Uh, this year, he, he's very, very good with his feet. He's a good shot stopper, as you'd expect. He, he's got a confidence about him. Um, and in terms of where he can go, then, you know, who knows? The modern-day key ticks a lot of boxes for, for the modern-day goalkeeper. You know, like I say, with the, the playing outs and how good he is with the ball at his feet. So, you know, I'm sure... He's just got in the New Zealand national squad recently, um, so I'm sure he'll be on the radar of clubs overseas in Europe. You know, you see a lot of A-League boys going to Scandinavia, uh, sort of Belgium, France, these, these countries. So, um, yeah, listen, I'll, I'll be surprised if he's not sort of popping up on on these these countries or these clubs' radars. Um, but again, like I said earlier, he's got it. He's done it for six games. You know, goalkeepers probably need to earn the stripes over time, similar to centre backs. It, it's very rarely. It, Six months, you're not like a, the strikers like Alex on their way. You'd have a good six months, score a few goals, you can get a move. I think it's all about consistency, and hopefully, you can do that over the course of this season and for many years to come, whether that's here or, or overseas. And you mentioned, uh, you know, the defence and how strong you've been. You've only conceded four in the six matches and, and one from in three away games. I mean, there's a couple of young boys, uh, young local boys in defence there with you. You've struck up a great partnership yourself with Finn Sermon. Is it your job then, as the more experienced one, to be the organiser, lead these guys around out there? Yeah, I think so. I, I certainly take that in. Don't mind uh, sort of holding that responsibility. Um, you know, I, I've been a huge fan of Finn Sermons ever since he came to the club. Again, he played a few games in, in my first season here. Um, and he, again, similar to Alex, for me, he ticks a, a lot of boxes to become a, a top, top player and eventually make the leap overseas. Uh, into Europe um, but yeah listen as you know the older you get the more games you play the more experience you get you sort of naturally have to take on that mantle of being being the talker or the organiser or, but you know so far there's not been much sort of you know screaming shouting needed because everyone's been, been playing so well and also there's so much work done on the training pitch these days uh, particularly in the A-League you know you don't play one game a week so there's, there's plenty of hours on the training pitch to we, we, you know, you know what you're doing before you go into the games, and that comes down to the, again the preparation of of the manager and the assistant coach. So, yeah, that's my role. But a lot of the work is done during the week. This weekend, of course, you uh, host the Newcastle Jets, who. Uh, I believe I haven't won at Westpac Stadium since 2016, so I guess you, you'll probably be confident of extending your lead at the top. Uh, and then looking a bit more longer term, Scott, next season, I know you've signed a long-term deal to be with the Phoenix. Uh, of course, we're going to have a team in Auckland in the competition as well. So a New Zealand derby, that'll be interesting. Yeah, no, it will be. Um, I think it'll be great for, for the Phoenix Um It'll bring some competition for for the New Zealand players. I think it'll really, um, you know, really force the hand of, of both clubs to to act in terms of that with the Kiwi boys. Um, obviously, it's been difficult for the for the Kiwi boys being classed as foreigners for um, for the Australian clubs. So now that there's another club, that that will help them. And it'll be, I think when there's competition, I think it bring the best out of of both of certainly our club. I hope. Um, so that'll be nice. That'll be. Uh, 
less travel to look forward to as well for two of them games. Uh, it would be good for us. Um, talk it. Sorry, and yeah, Newcastle Saturday. Yep. Sorry, go on. No, go on. Finish off. Sorry, Scott, I interrupted you. I was just going to say Newcastle. Newcastle Saturday. Yeah, you know, listen, we we we're full of confidence. Like you say, we're unbeaten. Um, I've seen a few of their games. They, they, we played them in pre-season. Uh, we know they've got some some dangerous players. Um, so it, it's and you know what the A League's like. It's the gap between top and bottom is is very thin. I, I believe, and it's about being consistent as possible. So we you know we can't take anything for granted going into that game. Uh, now we've just been talking about rivalries. One that uh, is around the corner in New Zealand. Um, as for you, there's well, I guess there's no bigger rivalry in Northwest England than Liverpool or Manchester United, and you were a former junior at both clubs. Now, not too many players uh, cross that divide, even at junior level. How on earth did that come about, and how did that go down in your hometown of Birkenhead, which I assume sort of leans a little bit more oh. towards Liverpool? Yeah, spot on. Um, so, yeah, Birkenhead is. Trammy Rovers is the local team, but mm-hmm. the majority of the people there are split between Everton and Liverpool. Um, and how it come about, I was playing for Whittle Schoolboys. Uh, that was under 11s, under 12s. Um, and at the time, I had, a, I had a choice between Liverpool, Man United, and Crew. And again, as you'll know, I chose Liverpool down to geography. You know, I was in high school. I was taking me, me school you know, reasonably seriously. I had great parents who, who were for that as well. But every year, um, the Man United scouts just seem to ring me up and um, ask if I've been kept on at Liverpool. And, you know, to be honest, I was loving it at Liverpool, really. There was great coaches there. Like Steve Highway was a legendary player. He was head of the academy. He, he really rated me. And then I think when Benitez came in, or, or shortly after he, he had a couple of seasons there, he just sort of changed the whole structure of the club, changed all the youth system, all the coaches got sacked. Um they, Liverpool started signing a hell of a lot of young sort of foreign players from all over Europe, all over the world that were blocking the pathway of the um, of the young English players. And at the time, there was a lot of lot of good young local players. I think Liverpool won the Youth Cup two years on the bounce. So at that age, really, it's not much more you can do. And a lot of these players couldn't even get in the reserve team. Uh, never mind anywhere near the first team. And I was, I think, 15 at the time. And it was like, you know, all the parents were sort of chatting and it wasn't a happy place and no no one could see a real pathway to get into it again. The reserve team, never mind even even the first team. And cause I remember the, this year again, the United Scout rang my dad up and said, you know, how's he getting on? Why are they keeping him on? And he just sort of said, no, we're, we're not really happy with what's going on at the club. There's a lot of talk about pathways being blocked and stuff. And, and that was sort of that really invited me for a week's trial. Um, I think the next week or a couple of weeks later. So I sort of informed Liverpool that I wanted to leave. Um, and I went up to Manchester, had trained for a week with the youth team. And um, and yeah, at the end of that week, they said they, they wanted to sign me. And, and that was that, really. And mate, at Manchester United, uh, in your time there, you played under Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, I mean, just on that, first tell us what it was like playing under him at Old Trafford. But then some of your teammates as well, Ryan Giggs, uh, Jesse Lingard, Wayne Rooney, Paul Scholes. Mate, who was the best player you played with? Best player was Paul Scholes. Um, he, he was just unbelievable. He'd do things in training that like were almost laughable. You know what I mean? He just like play passes that no one could even see. And even like the top players, even like the Rooney's gigs, Ferdinand, they 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 just be giggling on the training pitch. He was that he'd do things that were that good. Um, so he he was the best uh, for sure. Probably closely followed by um, Wayne Rooney. He was an unbelievable player as well. 
But again, you know, we had a very good result in my youth team. There was Jesse Lingard, like you just mentioned, uh, Ravel Morrison, he was an unbelievable player. Paul Pogba, uh, Ryan Tunnicliffe, who's now at Adelaide United, he was. Yeah. Um, we were good teammates for, for many years. Uh, I'm sure he'll be a big player in the league once he, he gets going. Um, and yeah, under Sir Alex, it was just it's difficult. Really, you don't realise sort of how good it is and how much of an aura and stuff until you actually leave because you know you're going for your life. You're in school and that little, and then when you're at United full time and you train and it just becomes sort of like the norm. It wasn't until I left and I went to Leeds you actually realised how good of a time that was, um, and even probably highlighted now since the the probably relative lack of success that the club has had. You know, when I was there, I think three out of the four, not in terms of me being a first-team player, but at the club, three out of the four years, they got the Champions League finals. They were constantly winning the Premier League. Um, it was just like it was just like a well-oiled machine. You know, it was unbelievable. The, the, mm. the first team probably had two international 11, 11 uh, the 11 on training. The reserve players was full of players who, if you went back through now, have all had... You know, unbelievable careers. Not all at the top, top level, but all played hundreds and hundreds of league games, and it just filtered down throughout the club. The coaching was incredible. Coaches like Paul McGuinness, Warren Joyce, these guys. Warren Joyce actually coached Melbourne City a few years mm. ago. These, these guys were just like again incredible, and you don't really realise how good they are until until you leave and you go to other clubs and you see how other people work. So um, that was an amazing time, great time to be at the club, and again something. That you you never really sit and think about until you see get asked these questions, you know, and, and you realise that it was a it was a great time and a great ex- experience for me. Well, Scott, you're having a great time as well with Wellington Phoenix at the moment. Uh, we wish you all uh, the very best for that to continue. Um, you play the Newcastle Jets this weekend. We could go on for hours uh, talking about uh, your career, particularly at Manchester United in, in the early days. But unfortunately, the clock has beaten us. But we do thank you for your time tonight on The Global Game. Absolutely fascinating story. Thanks very much, mate. Thanks, mate. No worries, guys. Thanks very much. Cheers, guys. That's the Wellington Phoenix defender Scott Wooden with us, thanks to Paramount Plus. The A-League where stars are made every round, every game, live only on Paramount Plus. Well, this week we're going to start previewing the Asian Cup, which starts in January in Qatar, of course, and we start our countdown with a look at the hosts and the defending champions, Qatar. Alanabi or the Maroon kick off the tournament with a game against Lebanon at Lusail Stadium on January the 12th, where the 2022 World Cup final was played, of course, and where the Asian Cup final will be played on February the 10th. Coached by Carlos Queros, Qatar have had a rather mixed record since crashing out of their own World Cup on the group stage, winning just four games from 16 internationals. Two of those were in their last two World Cup qualifiers against Afghanistan and India. Kiaros, who took over from Felix Sanchez, said in June that the Qatari players were exhausted by the pressure put on them ahead of the World Cup and that his aim was to reinvigorate the team by building greater depth, a dynasty if you like, that can challenge on the regional stage for years to come. Kiaros employs a 4-3-3 system with Almo Azali and Akram Afif his main attacking threats prompted by the veteran Hassan Al-Haidos. Ali, who won the Golden Boot four years ago in the UAE and then repeated the feat two years later at the CONCACAF Gold Cup, netted five times in the recent qualifiers and he was nominated for the Asian Player of the Year award just last month. Defensively, Kerosh relies on naturalised players such as Bulam Kuki, 
Lucas Mendes and Pedro Miguel, known as Roro. But the trio are all 33, underlining that need for generational change. One younger star to look out for is Tamim Mansour, the son of Qatari legend Mansour Mufta, who held the Qatari goal-scoring record until Al Moazali recently overtook him. Qatar should be good enough to get through the group containing Lebanon, Tajikistan and China and the round of 16, especially with home supports. The quarterfinals onwards though will be a truer test of any progress they have made 12 months on from hosting the World Cup. Qatar have played Australia on five occasions, winning just the once, although that was in the last meeting, a friendly in Doha in 2014. The second team in the group, China, remain one of the great enigmas of Asian football. They've threatened to break into the upper echelon on several occasions, but never quite seemed to make it. Alexander Yankovic, a 51-year-old Serb who once played for Bonnie Rig White Eagles in Australia, was appointed coach in July 2022, largely on the back of a goalless draw away to big rivals Japan, but results since have been mixed epitomised by two World Cup qualifiers in November when they negotiated a tricky away tie in Thailand to win 2-1, but then fell flat on their faces at home to South Korea in Shenzhen a few days later. China have only qualified for the World Cup once, but on the Asian stage they've reached the quarterfinals in each of the last two tournaments, and made the final back in 2004. They were supposed to be hosting this tournament, but had to pull out due to complications over the COVID pandemic. They should still be good enough to get through the group again this time behind Qatar, but progression beyond that is more doubtful. Jankovic employs a 3-4-2-1 shape, which often translates to a back five against better opponents, and he relies heavily on an experienced spine. Goalkeeper Yang Yunling, defender Zhang Linpeng, midfielder and captain Wu Shi and their talisman Wu Lei, now back in China with Shanghai Port after a three-year spell in Spain with Espanyol. China's gone down the road of bringing in players born overseas of Chinese heritage in recent years with Elkerson, Nico Yanaris, now known as Lee Kei, and Tyus Browning, or Zhang Guangtai, as he's now known, all pulling on the red jersey, but their selection remains a bone of contention among native Chinese. China's most recent fixtures against Australia are in the World Cup qualifiers for Qatar, producing a 3-0 win for the Socceroos in neutral Doha, and then a one-all draw in the return in Sharjah. Their only Asian Cup meeting came in the quarterfinals in Brisbane in 2015, a Tim Cahill bicycle kick punctuating Australia's 2-0 win. Tajikistan are first-time qualifiers for the Asian Cup, topping a qualifying group involving Myanmar, Singapore and neighbours Kyrgyzstan. They've further built confidence ahead of their debut by winning the King's Cup in 2022 and the Merdeka Cup, held in Malaysia in October of this year. Their coach is the vastly experienced Croatian Petar Segat, who built his coaching career in Germany as a number two at Bochum, Duisburg and Waldhof Mannheim. He has previously been in charge of Afghanistan and the Maldives, two of eight countries in which he's worked. He is rather enigmatic, who goes by the name of Einstein due to his looks. And he isn't averse to a bit of psychological game playing with opposition coaches. 
The Tajiks have made a good start to the second round of Asian World Cup qualifying, thrashing Pakistan 6-1 after holding Jordan to a one-all draw thanks to a late equaliser by Sharom Samiev in Dushanbe. Their next qualifier, however, away to Saudi Arabia, will be the acid test. Segert plays with a 4-3-3 system and his team's undoubted star is midfielder and captain Parvajon Umabayev, who plays his club football in Bulgaria for CSKA Sofia. Veteran striker Manachir Jalalov, the nation's all-time leading goalscorer, may not make the cup as the 33-year-old was hospitalised in September, suffering from a serious illness. In his expected absence, Samiev, who plays for Milsami Orhe in Moldova, or Rustam Soryov, who plays for Lokomotiv Tashkent in Uzbekistan after a stint in Estonia, may well lead the attack. Tajikistan have only played Australia twice at international level, both World Cup qualifiers for the 2018 finals in Russia, and lost them both. 3-0 in Dushanbe in 2015, and 7-0 in Adelaide in early 2016. And finally, Lebanon. The Cedars are taking part in their second consecutive Asian Cup and just their third overall. In the UAE four years ago, they were unlucky not to qualify for the knockout phase as one of the best third place teams, losing out to Vietnam on the yellow card rule of all things after a 4-1 win over North Korea. This time they qualified in second place in their group behind South Korea, against whom they performed credibly, drawing nil all in Beirut and only going down 2-1 in the return thanks to an own goal and a Son Heung-min penalty. Lebanon are led by Croatian Nikola Jurcevic, who spent two years as Slavin Bilic's assistant at West Ham United, and he normally lines his team up in a 4-3-3 formation, with star player Hassan Matuk on the left side of that front three. Matuk is his country's all-time leading goalscorer, with 23 goals across his 112 caps, which are also a national record. He grew up in Germany, and has played professionally in the UAE, even though he's now 36 and appearing at his last Asian Cup, he remains the Cedars' go-to man, scoring one of those goals against North Korea four years ago. Matuk is supplemented with quite a few players from the Lebanese diaspora. Their current squad contains players born in America, Australia, Sweden, England, the Ivory Coast, Sierra Leone, Venezuela and Germany, although most do play their club football in Lebanon. Lebanon have been drawn in Australia's group in round two of the Asian World Cup qualifiers as well. They've endured a difficult start, drawing both their opening games against Palestine and Bangladesh, where a goal from Indonesian-based Majed Osman was cancelled out five minutes later. Lebanon will open the tournament with a game against the hosts Qatar. After the Asian Cup, they meet Australia twice in five days in March. They have only twice met the Socceroos previously, losing 3-0 on both occasions last of which was in 2018. Yes, our Premier League update with Spencer Pryor, thanks to Schnitz. Got that winning taste right now. Schnitz, handcrafted schnitzels, made fresh, made just for you. How are you, Spen? I'm fantastic, Simon. And you and Broski, how are you guys keeping? Yeah, We're good, very, yeah. very good. And yet, a little bird tells me that uh, before we get on to the Premier League, you've left your role with Apia Leichhardt as uh, head women's coach. What's going on, mate? I have. I mean, we had a great season last year. Won the club championship, won the Premier League. So, uh, 
we'll see what else is around the corner. It's um, it, it's brilliant club, brilliant journey, but uh, I think that I think there's going to be a lot of changes there. They're going in a bit of a different direction, so it's okay. And um, yeah, just see what else is out there. Very cryptic, Spinner. Very cryptic. Uh, we'll move on. Before we talk about the weekend games in the Premier League, uh, it's been announced in the last 24 hours that uh, they've just signed a new TV deal worth, get this, £6.7 billion. It's the largest ever sports deal in UK history. It, look, it is a remarkable success story, the Premier League, but does it once again perhaps accentuate the gulf between that league and the other European leagues financially, which, of course, is driving this Super League, particularly on the continent. It does. And, you know, I, I agree with you. That's, that's the thing that's driving the clubs from overseas, whether it's in Italy or Spain or Germany, that want to be part of that. Um, but the Premier League, it, uh, I mean, some of the games at the weekend, it is the best league in the world. So all the players want to play in it. Um, it, it, it just... It's 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 the best league, so everyone wants a bit of it. It's a fantastic deal, and you know it will it will just mean that the players will get paid more money, and they, and good luck to them. So, it, mate, I wish I was playing it when it was like the TV deals. <laughs> it, you you only need one contract, but from a from a player's perspective, it's fantastic. Um, the product is outstanding. It does show the gap, but you're right. The Super League is now something that everybody's got to really watch out for. And Spanner, on the pitch, uh, Man City 3, mm. Spurs 3, an incredible game. And um, apparently Ange had a, a good old spray at halftime to kick his side into gear. Um, mm. mate, a, looking at that game, a City more vulnerable you know, than you've seen them over the last couple of seasons. They've conceded 10 in their last four now. Do you know what, Bosky? It's not just them. I think I think defending generally, and we can talk about it even going on to the Liverpool game. Defending's like virtually non-existent now, and you know I, I think I think teams and Man City are getting a little bit exposed defensively. You you look at Son's goal, right? Doc, Jimmy Docko's tracking him back. And he's almost playing as a centre-back. I don't understand why, you know, we, we've moved away from defenders pro, predominantly focusing on defending first and being super defensive-minded first. I, I'm not saying just kick it into Rose Ed like I used to. But <laughs> I, I just think I think defending is, uh, is, is going out of the game a little bit. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to fault Man City for the way that they play and how attack-minded they are. And if the principle is if they score three, we'll score four, and you have that every week. Again, that goes back to the TV. It was fantastic for the fans to watch. Um, and, and credit to Ange for... The, I, I, I don't want it to be that it's a dig at Man City for copping three goals at home. I'd rather praise Ange and Tottenham for the bravery and the way that they played. Absolutely. Tell you what, though, Mickey Droy wouldn't have that, would he, Spanner? Oh, um, you know Vic... that, Simon. <laughs> Mickey Droy, for younger listeners, was, uh, let's call him a no-nonsense central defender for Chelsea back in the 1970s, and he was Spencer's boyhood hero. Um, I want to ask you about the big uh, talking point of the game. Obviously, late on, City pushing for the winner. Uh, Simon Hooper, the referee, uh, failed to play an advantage when really he shouldn't have done Now. My opinion on this, I, I thought he got it wrong. I think a lot of people thought he got it wrong. But yeah. 
City were incensed. They've been charged with misconduct. And leading the way was Erling Haaland. Now, I love Erling. Obviously, he's a City fan. He scored lots of goals. But I, I think another thing that is indicative of the modern game, Spinner, I don't know if you agree, that all the talk in the post game was not about a brilliant game of football or the fact that Erling Haaland missed an absolute sitter. It was the fact that Haaland was having a crack at the referee and the focus is all on him. I think we've got it a little bit the wrong way around. And I think VAR has exacerbated that uh, to a a huge degree. And we are now talking about referees every week. I mean, you know, everybody now calling for him to be dropped for next week or, you know, he's got to sit out a two, three week suspension or whatever. I mean, nobody's saying that Pep Guardiola should drop Erling Haaland for missing an open goal, are they? And you're right that the focus has gone on to that, but... You know, it, it was it was a performance from him that was probably lacking his usual Pope-like instincts in terms of scoring. But no, and no one's going to hold that against him for a game. But everybody seems to be jumping all over him for, for what happened with him him firing up at the, the official. He did get it wrong. He he, he got it wrong. There's there's no evidence, and we can't say it was going to be a goal anyway, and Jack Grealish was going to score. We don't know whether he either scored or not, right? Mm. But you try if you try and take, you know, it, it's it's the last minute of the game. Tottenham have just scored. Man City is still going to push for a winner, and and he's made a poor decision. Players are players are, are emotional players. I'd rather I'd rather see emotional players and passionate players than players don't that don't care. You know, if you look at Marcus Rashford's performance at the weekend, that's getting scrutinised on another level, saying he didn't try and he didn't run. I'd rather see a player with fuller passion still, but there's a fine line between having passion and overstepping the mark. And it's just a shame that the focus has been on how he how he fired up at the official after the game. It's it's natural players. Players are, are, are playing with passion. You know, they're 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 testosterone's pumping while you know in the game, and the adrenaline. It's it's hard. It is genuinely hard to control that. Um, and, and yeah, off off day on the pitch, wrong decision. You know the way he conducted himself, but but move on from it. Don't don't hold it against him for too long. Um, I, I mean, I do wonder as well, Simon, I'd, I'd like to get... You've been covering the game for a lot longer as well, Spanner. You played as well. Do, I mean, have things gotten worse? I feel like it was... When I watch footage of, of you know, uh, football back in the day, players were always getting upset and going at referees. I don't think anything's changed or gotten worse. Uh, well, what's, what's changed is the fact that the cameras are covering every single uh, decision in to the nth degree. And it's being yeah. analysed to the nth degree on television and radio and in newspapers afterwards. That's the thing that's changed. Right. I think back in the day, yes. I mean, referees say, have never been popular. No, never. you could get away with saying a lot more, and Spanner, yeah. you'll tell you, back in the day than, than, than now. These days you can't, and, and for that reason, but I don't know. I don't think it's yeah. that. Well, I, I think Brosky, it's the coverage they're, they're talking Brosky, You know, they're talking about potentially introducing a thing bit. Like... Teams are going to finish up with six and seven players on the pitch at any one time. I'll tell you what else they're talking about introducing, and that is uh, extending the powers of VAR. 
Goodness me. To what? We're going we're gonna to go on for about three hours, I think, oh, every, every Saturday night. Turn into anyway, NBA match. <laughs> let's, uh, let's move on, Spanner. Talk about Liverpool. They got a 4-3 win over yeah. Fulham. Another uh, seesaw game, only claiming the three points late on, thanks to Wataru Endo and Trent Alexander-Arnold again. Um, I guess their, their performance uh, or the result is, is the two big talking points. Uh, and Alexis McAllister with, with a terrific goal as well. It was a wonderful goal. McAllister's was... They're, they're the ones that either finish up hitting the corner flag, if, if you're me or Broski. Um, they <laughs> could, no, not you, Broski. Yours, yours would have probably gone over the bar. My, mine probably would have hit the corner flag. <laughs> I think, but it was, it was a phenomenal strike, sat up really nicely for him. They were all good goals, to be fair to Liverpool. I thought, you know, Alexander's winner, you know, you've got, you've got your right back playing almost as a an attacking midfielder on the left-hand side. It, it's, it, was, it was a great game of football. Uh, and again, a credit to the league. Liverpool didn't give up. You know, they, they just kept pushing and pushing. Want to credit Fulham for the way they played and made a real good go of it. And again, I just think, I think there was, particularly from, particularly from Liverpool, some, some pretty ordinary defending in and around the box that allowed Fulham to get the three goals. But, Again, they've come out with three points. They'll be pumped up for next weekend and, and they move on. So, yeah, big three points from that. And Arsenal as well, uh, a big three points for them with a narrow 2-1 victory over Wolves. Um, the mm. Gunners now unbeaten since their controversial loss at Newcastle. Are they far from finding full stride? I think they're getting better and better every week. And I genuinely think they will push Man City even further this year. It's... Um, it, it's it, they're, they're playing brilliantly. It, you know, they controlled the game up until they're trying to play out in their own box and Zinchenko gives it away. Good finish from Wolves. Made a bit of a game at, at the end, but Arsenal just looks... They look strong. They, they You know what? If there's one team that looks super strong defensively, it's Arsenal. I think he's got that... You know, he's got... Um, I won't say a defensive mindset first, but he's definitely got them probably as the best organised defensive team in the league right now. And and I, 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 I just think it's going to take a lot, real lot to stop Arsenal. Uh, one final one, Spenner. The biggest game on Saturday, Newcastle defeating Manchester United again. Of course, they beat them in the Carabao Cup as well. Uh, by all yeah. accounts, were fully deserving winners over Manchester United at the weekend. Um, they are looking as though they're pretty good things for the top four again, but uh, United, it just seems to be up and down, up and down, doesn't it? Well, they came, they had two away games and then they were going to be flying across to Newcastle, right? And that got, the plane got cancelled, so they had to get the bus for four hours on a game day. Doesn't help. That, <laughs> it really doesn't help. Um, and, and it might sound like an excuse, but that's a genuine one. Um, they, they, were pretty well organised in the first half and everyone expected, you know, they were well organised, but they didn't have a shot. They literally, I think they only had one or two players touch a ball in Newcastle's penalty box. And, you know, you, I was watching the game and thinking that they're going to come out a bit more fired up for the second half. But I touched on it earlier, Rashford just wasn't tracking back. He just looked like he wanted to run forward. Newcastle came out absolutely pumped them for the first 10 minutes of the second half. Could have had two or three goals and it wouldn't have been, it probably wouldn't have been a, a, a wrong scoreline if it had finished three or four nil, but Man United looked well short, well short. And again, 
two back-to-back away games and then that trip, I think that probably took it out of them. And credit Newcastle again for the way that they, they, you know, they've had a brutal November. They had a very, very tough month. So, you know, onwards and upwards for Newcastle. They've got Tottenham or Everton first and then Tottenham both away games. So if they come out of those games with four points, I think they'll be in the mix again for top four. A lot of midweek games this week. Um, elsewhere at the weekend, uh, Bournemouth 2, Aston Villa 2. Villa taking on Man City uh, during the week. That'll be a tough game for City as well at Villa Park. At the bottom, Sheffield United thumped 5-0 by uh, fellow relegation strugglers Burnley. And they sacked Paul Heckingbottom on Monday. Chris Wilder, the hot favourite to return. And Everton defeated Nottingham Forest 1-0. Uh, and they're just two points now away from escaping that bottom three again. Uh, we'll have to leave it there this week. Uh, Spanner, thanks so much. Speak to you next week. Thanks, mate. Very good, guys. Goodbye. That's Spencer Pryor with our Premier League update. Thanks to Schnitz, home of fresh, golden, handcrafted schnitzels. And a reminder, you can listen to the Premier League all week long on SEN. Midweek action in the Premier League this week. Wednesday, it's Luton against Arsenal from 7am. Thursday, Man United Chelsea also at 7 Then this weekend, Saturday night, Sunday morning, Palace against Liverpool, Man U, Bournemouth and Aston Villa and Arsenal. Then on Monday, Luton against Man City and Tottenham against Newcastle. All those games available across the SEN network via the SEN app. Yes, let's talk the women's game with Alicia Carnabas. Evening to you, Alicia. How are you? Hey, Alicia. I'm good. Hi, team. How are we? We're good. Uh, probably a bit better than the Matildas after the other day. Uh, a Twitter question straight off the bat. Uh, this has come in from Haysom Mori. Uh, what are your thoughts, Alicia, on the experimental lineup Tony Gustafsson put out against Canada? Is it setting the Matildas up for failure? Should they be included in the lineup with more experienced heads to guide them through a game? Which is probably the question, I guess, that uh, everybody's been discussing over the last couple of days. Yeah, absolutely. And it goes without saying that a 5 0 loss uh, for the Matildas, particularly with where they're at at the moment in, I guess, the minds of fans and, and the country, I guess, is a bit of a shock. So I, I think we need to look at that as being a real contributing factor for, for all of the concern, which is a good thing. It's, it's not a bad thing at all. Um, am I for experimentation with our younger players? Absolutely. I've been speaking about it for a very long time. It's probably a little bit uh, too little too late at the moment with the stage that we're in uh, preparing for the Olympic Games next year. But um, I think when we saw the starting lineup, first of all, I was pretty excited when I saw the opportunities that were given to these these new players, Sarah Hunter, Remy Simpson, um, Charlie Rule, I think it was a wonderful opportunity for them. But, of course, the result, not so much. And it goes without saying that, of course, if we put more experienced players with them, it would have perhaps been a different ball game. But um, I think their first hit out against a team like Canada, um, it was never going to be easy with that lineup from Tony. So did any of the players uh, show evidence of the learning that Tony Gustafsson insisted was necessary in game one? Were there any standouts for you? Um, look, it's very difficult to, to see or to see what, what players learn in those circumstances. I can say, for one, that you you learn what it feels like to pretty much come back down to rock bottom very, very quickly. And you realise very quickly what you need to do to compete with the best in the world. Um, Canada, for me, is still one of the best teams in the world. Um, I don't think those girls had a chance uh, with Canada's high press to really show 
any sort of learning or development um, in that game. I think they were they were well, um, I guess, played out of that game in, in all of our attacking phases. I don't think we showed too much at all in those phases. At one stage, Sarah Hunter dropped back so deep that uh, we saw she coughed up a, a loose ball there, which resulted in a goal, which w- wouldn't be great for her confidence. But um, it's, it's hard to say. Hopefully in tomorrow's game, there's a bit of a blend. Those players get another opportunity. It's important that they get another opportunity, whether that's off the bench or in the starting lineup, but it's with a blend of more experienced heads as well. So as you rightly say, Alicia, game two is against uh, Canada tomorrow at BC Place in Vancouver, which is going to be uh, renamed Christine Sinclair Place. It's her final international, of course. Uh, 45,000 tickets have been sold, so it's going to be an emotional occasion again for the Canadians, which Australia will have to deal with. Uh, Mm. Do you expect the experienced players such as Catley, Ford, Carpenter to return? Yeah, I definitely do. I think we'll see all of those players back on the pitch. Um, I expect them to start as well, and I expect there to be some rotation again with those youngsters. Um, To touch on Christine Sinclair, I get that there'll be a lot of Canadians there to support her um, in tomorrow's match, and as they should be. She's been such an amazing figure for the game, and um, I think even our girls will have so much respect for the occasion tomorrow. So it's a game I'm looking forward to. And all of this, of course, is building towards the next set of Olympic qualifiers against Uzbekistan in February. Uh, The first leg will be held in Tashkent on the 24th of February. What do we Mm. know of Uzbekistan? Look, we don't know a lot, right? They're a team that have never qualified for an Olympic Games and also never qualified for a World Cup. So in terms of experience, I think Uzbekistan only formed a women's national team in 1995. So they're quite a young team when we look at at years on the park. And, of course, um, their lack of big tournament experience um, speaks for itself. So they're not going to be, I don't think, too much of a contest for our Matildas. I think that game in Tashkent, albeit um, with the opposition's crowd, will be tough, but I think we'll we'll be able to do the job pretty comfortably. Now, of course, the home leg, Alicia, takes place in Australia on the 28th, four days later. Venue is yet undecided. All states, no doubt, clamouring to host it, given the popularity of the Matildas at the moment. Uh, One or two people have suggested that Queensland should be ruled out by Football Australia as a punishment Uh, for the state government's continuing failure to fund a boutique stadium in Brisbane. As a Queenslander, how does that sit with you? (laughs) We're trying our best, guys. (laughs) There's a lot (laughs) happening up here in Queensland, in in the football space anyway. And um, it's something definitely that we need. That's without a doubt. There's no debate in that. We do need a boutique football stadium dedicated to football up here in Queensland and it's something that we speak of in the football fraternity quite often. Having said that, do I think Suncorp Stadium is the best pitch in the country outside of Amy Park uh, for a square or rectangular pitch? Yes, I do. Um, We seat 55,000. Please don't take the Brisbane Rules experience as what we have to offer. We saw it in the World Cup. We can do a little bit better at Suncorp. Uh, with the right amount of preparation as well. Yeah. So do I think a 55,000-seater in Queensland in Suncorp is the way to go? Yes. You've got a bit of work to do on that pitch, though, before then. Mm. Um, <laughs> only took 100 <laughs> days to turn it from a snooker table into a cow paddock. Uh, thing. We'll, fi- <laughs> we'll finish <laughs> off overseas, um, Alicia. Uh, no A-League women's matches, of course, uh, this weekend because of the international break. Uh, there's been a review into women's football led by uh, Karen Carney, former player, 
the government in the UK has accepted all the recommendations by that review, which include the scrapping of the three o'clock Saturday blackout for television. Now, I think this represents a really good opportunity uh, for the Women's Super League in England to, to really grab a lot of eyeballs on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, and two questions in one to finish, if you, if you wouldn't mind. There's a really interesting game tonight between Scotland and England in the Olympic qualifiers. England, the nominated nation to represent GB in the Paris Games. They need to win. Scotland might do themselves out of an Olympic slot, or some of the players, if they beat England, which seems ludicrous to me. <laughs> it's a really, really tricky um, position. Like GB, I think, needs to be separate at this stage, personally. I think when we look around at World Cups and other major tournaments in all codes, um, I think it's only the British and Irish Lions outside of the Olympics that come together as a more of a novelty in rugby union. But for me, I'd love to see them separate. England uh, as their own team. Uh, we see it around the world where there is realistically every, every nation has their own identity. And I think that's important because if if I was Scotland, I'd be a little bit annoyed. Let's be real. No offence, Simon. I'm, I'm sure mm. England will be great representation, but I think the Scots are, are definitely uh, making waves in, in football, that's for sure. Um, and, and leaning into the WSL and the success there that's, that's come through from the government, I think it's so, so important, and I think it's a brilliant result. Uh, with the investment in the NWSL in the US, I think it's very, very important, this move and the next steps albeit complex, um, for the WSL. I think more eyes is a great thing um, and then to keep up with the investment in the NWSL um, and to make great strides in European football, I think it's important. I tell you what, I reckon that 3pm slot Saturday afternoon in the UK would absolutely kill it. People would love to watch football at that time on TV. Uh, the lower league clubs in the men's game might not particularly like it because it might affect their attendances. But interesting times over there. Alicia, time has beaten us as per usual. Uh, our apologies. Uh, we'll speak to you next week. Awesome. Chat soon, guys. Thanks a lot. That's Alicia Carnavas with uh, the women's game. We're off for another quick break. On the other side of it, we will answer some of your texts and tweets. It's time for Football Asia with Paul Williams. Yes, let's round out the show as we always do with Football Asia in the company of Paul Williams from the Asian Game, podca game Podcast. Evening, Paolo. Hello, Paul. Simon, Alex, how are you guys? <laughs> Very good, apart from the pronunciation of the word game. Uh, before we move on to the action around the continent, a word on Shinji Ono, uh, the Japanese legend who, of course, played here in Australia for the Wanderers with such a plum. He's finally called it a day. The age of 44. There's hope for Broski yet. <laughs> That's young when you think about what Miura's, Kazu is doing. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know that there are any real words to properly do Shinji Ono's career justice. Um, his peak came before my time covering football. I was still in high school when he was still running around at his uh, his peak. But you speak to anyone who covered football at that time and they'll tell you just how good a, a player he was. He's still the youngest Japanese player to ever to play at a World Cup. He was 18 when he played in, uh, in France. 1998, and he was sort of part of that first generation of Japanese players that really started to move across to Europe. You think of likes of Hitotoshi Nakata as well, Junichi uh, Inamoto, Shinji Ono. It was one of those. Went to Feyenoord, won the UEFA Cup. Um, he was a, a trailblazer for that generation. Of course, we remember him fondly for his stint with 
Western Sydney Wanderers um, as part of that triumvirate with um, Heskey and, and Del Piero as well. Um, I, I just, the, the, the moment that stands out to me, it might not be the finest moment in his career, but it's the goal that he scored against Brisbane, the, the audacity to even attempt it, the technique to pull it off. Um, I think Brenton Speed got the, the call absolutely right. A genius he most certainly is. He was just an absolute joy to watch um, and sadly missed now that he's gone at 44, but I don't think his uh, contribution to Japanese football is going to end there. No, I played with him in, um, at, in, in Japan at S-Pulse and he was incredible. I mean, on the field, the respect that he had from all the younger players and then off the field, how he helped us foreigners as well and, and um, had us over for dinner and, and always made us feel uh, welcome. Such a such an incredible guy for everything that he did anyway. Mm. Mate, looking in uh, at Korea, we spoke last week about the relegation scrap that was um, that was happening there between the two Suwon clubs uh, and eventually the Blue Wings ended up dropping to K2 after they... Uh, could only draw with Gangwon in their final game. So an incredible mm. fall from Grace for the you know two-time former Asian club champions. Yeah, a huge fall from Grace. We've been covering it a little bit over the last couple of weeks. I thought they might actually pull it off. And after their two previous wins, um, I thought they might make it a third and avoid at least automatic relegation. But this has been a long time coming. I've mentioned before about Samsung, who, who owned the team, and the real lack of investment over the last couple of years. And I was reading an article this week from Korea that just highlighted and emphasized that point. A decade ago in 2013, they had the highest wage bill of anyone in Korea um, at 9 billion Korean won, which is about 7 million US dollars. Um, and at that time, Ulsan Hyundai's was about 6 billion won, so about 3 billion won less. A, a decade on, um, Suwon's is now 8 billion, so it's actually dropped. And Ulsan are now at 17 billion once the Suwon have gone from being um, the highest spenders in the league to one of the lowest spenders in the league. And that's reflected now in their performances and their results on the pitch as well. And there was a, a quote from their coach after they got relegated, quite damning quote. It was Yom Ki-hun, who was a, a veteran of Suwon, played there for 13 years. He was there in sort of those those peak years as well. Um, and he said, of course, the, the players did their, their best, um, but it would have helped their cause if they had more talented players at their disposal, which is a bit of a whack to the, the players that he's he's got. But I guess it just highlights the plight that they can no longer attract the best players in Korean football. The question I have now is, what happens next? How quickly do they bounce back? Will this malaise continue in K- K2 or will there be sort of an automatic bounce back? Um, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens because they have been a powerhouse club. Indeed. Um, no such problems for Saudi Arabia in signing top players. They can afford what they want. Uh, one of whom, of course, is uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, who was taunted from the opposition fans after his team, Al Nasser, uh, lost the Riyadh derby to great rivals Al Halal. How did he take mm. it? <laughs> As uh, I don't think he likes losing at the best of times, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, but I think he's become accustomed now to copying the jeers and the calls of Messi from the, uh, the Al-Halal fans. He's had it a, a few times now. But it was a, a fantastic occasion. I woke myself up early on Saturday morning to to watch it, and it was fantastic derby fair. It was a, a massive crowd, sold-out uh, crowd at the King Fahd Stadium for its last ever match before redevelopment. Incredible TIFOs from both sides. There were flares all across the stadium, and the, the first 15 minutes was a, a frenzy of action. It's it's what the SPL wants to become 
over the next five to 10 years as it sort of continues on this journey. The, the game sort of turned midway through the second half on the back of a moment involving Cristiano Ronaldo. He put the ball into the back of the net, um, was ruled out for offside. Um, they have the semi, a semi-automated offside system in, in Saudi Arabia that we saw at the World Cup last year. And it came back, and I think it might have been a hair on his shoulder, um, was offside, if he has any hair on his body, that is. Um, it was the most marginal of marginal calls, but it was flagged and it was. Uh, it would have been interesting if it was 1-1 with 20 minutes to go. Would have been game on. Um, but then, you know, Mitrovic, the star for Al-Halal, scores two goals in five minutes at the other end. Um, almost scored a hat-trick with a spectacular bicycle kick as well. Um, and they win 3-0 and extend their lead to to seven points at the end of the season. And as I said, this is what the SPL, the Saudi Pro League, this is what they want their league to become. It's a little bit like us when we see the Sydney Derby here. We look at the scenes and think, how can we get that every week? If we had that every week, imagine what we could have. And it's a little bit the same in Saudi Arabia after uh, scenes and games like that as well. Well, what does seem to be happening happening every week is something, a big decision coming out of Saudi. And um, the AFC has made the decision to host the new look AFC Champions League elite finals in Saudi for the first two years, meaning from the quarterfinal stage onwards, all games will be held there at Saudi Arabia and take place over one leg. Mm. You're going to get me going on a bit of a rant here, I reckon, because <laughs> this is something Good. I feel incredibly passionate about not so much the the decision to hold it in in Saudi Arabia I mean I think that's just a byproduct of the decision that the AFC and their um, professional leagues task force can the competitions committee of course James Johnson is a member of that committee as well they ratified this decision when they did the reforms for the Champions League to stage the the finals um, the final stages as they're calling it the quarterfinals semifinals and the final um, in a, a centralized hub um, Saudi Arabia have capitalized on the back of that it was them in Iraq that put forward bids to to host that so it's no surprise that it's gone to Saudi Arabia in what is they they said it was a two-year deal it will be a five-year deal I've been told Saudi's prepared to host it for up to 10 years um, so you know we're going to be going back to, to Saudi Arabia for a long time but for me I think this is, one of the most um, appalling and disappointing decisions and decisions that the AFC has made that's going to do incredible damage, I think, to the AFC Champions League. Because Asia is just not a continent where you can stage neutral venue matches. It's geographically too spread and too diverse. It's incredibly expensive, time-consuming to travel across the country. And it just doesn't have the fan culture, the, the travel culture that you're going to get in Europe where something like this might be possible. So what you're going to see is you're going to deny yourself the opportunity to have some iconic occasions. And we've seen knockout matches in the past in in China, Japan, Iran, even in Saudi Arabia. Iconic occasions, you know, a trip to Saitama Stadium means something because of the history of teams going there. And you're going to get, you're going to be denied that opportunity now. You're probably going to have you know, most of the big four teams from Saudi Arabia there or thereabouts at the at the pointy end of the competitions. But, you know, what happens if you get a, a quarterfinal between, you know, Vissel Kobe and, and Shanghai Port that's being played in, in Jeddah or Persepolis and, and Pactacor? You're going to have... You're going to have the most important matches of the competition played in front of empty stadiums. And I just don't see where the value in having those, those biggest matches played in front of empty stadiums, where that comes from. How are you driving 
interest and demand in your competition when you're presenting it across a backdrop of of empty stadiums. Um, and from a Saudi point of view as well, imagine with all the stars that they've got there, imagine Neymar in Japan or Ronaldo in Thailand or Benzema here in Australia for a knockout match and what mm. that could do for the competition in these parts of the world. And instead, these games are going to be played in the middle of the night um, where half the competition, uh, half the continent that's already disengaged from this competition to begin with aren't going to be able to to watch it. So I just think it's it's one of the most appallingly short-sighted decisions that I can remember from, from AFC, and it's one that I fear is going to do a significant amount of damage to this competition. It's almost as if it's just all about the money and they don't care about the fans, but no. We couldn't mm. say that. Uh, talking <laughs> of the money, Paolo, uh, the prize money has gone up from four million to twelve million. Now, you know, for for clubs in Saudi, maybe that doesn't mean too much because they've got plenty. But for a club in the A League, if we were to get a Wanderers through to the ground, to the final uh, or the Adelaide, <laughs> as, as has happened before in the past, you know, that that's a game changer, isn't it, for a club down here? A game, absolute for for a club from Australia. That's an incredible amount of money, considering that there's no prize money for the A League, as well. Um, whether it's still enough to satisfy and appease the clubs participating, we'll wait and see. I think the whole structure around the prize money needs to be reformed as well. I hope it is. I haven't seen any details yet as to what's going to happen moving forward. But I think the the prize money for qualifying for the tournament needs to be larger. The prize money for, um, you know, for wins in the tournament needs to be larger. Cause I think what we've got now is so many clubs lose money playing in the tournament, yeah. which almost disincentivizes um, those clubs. And that's just not a, a situation you should be having. The, the champions league should be the champions league, the premier club competition where clubs go and they can, they can make significant amounts of money. I mean, 12 million for, for winning it is, is nothing to be sneezed at, but it's the same amount of prize money that you get for winning the J league as well. Whereas if you win your continental competition, you think it should be significantly more than your domestic competitions. So we'll wait and see what happens on that front. Uh, final question, Paolo, before we let you go. Uh, just a bit of a recap on last week's action uh, in the Champions League and indeed the AFC Cup. A few big talking points. Uh, Bangkok United winning their group ahead of uh, traditional heavyweights John Book Motors. Kevin Muscat's Yokohama F. Marinos facing possible elimination at the group stage. And in the AFC Cup, uh, I just want clarification that I'm reading this correctly. If MacArthur and the Mariners do go through in the ASEAN zone, then they will play in the zonal semi-finals against probably Sabah and Phnom Penh Crown. And am I am I reading that correctly or not? Because you need a degree think... in maths to figure out this <laughs> AFC Cup tournament. Thank God this is the last uh, year of this format of the AFC Cup tournament. Um, <laughs> I, I think you are reading that right. Yes, definitely. Um, so Sabah look absolute odds on to to win that uh, other group, and then it comes down to which team is the the best second place team for the. Uh, the fourth team from ASEAN that looks like it's going to be Phnom Penh Crown at this point in time. Um, so then, as you said, Central Coast and, and MacArthur, I think they do avoid each other and they'll play um, either one of those two teams. Um, in, in the Champions League, as you said, that's a huge result for Bangkok United to finish ahead of, of John Book. And we just sort of finished speaking about Suwon and the Malays that's, that's struck them over the last couple of years. And there's a little bit of that creeping into John Book as well. They finished fourth in the league this season. It's their lowest position in the K-League since 2008. And it also means they haven't qualified for the Champions League for the first time since 2009, um, unless they go on to win it this year, which looks unlikely. So that's an incredible 
um, sort of fall from grace for for John Book to to not qualify for the Champions League. They are a fixture and a furniture of this of this tournament. And and just finally, then on Muskie, they've had a disappointing campaign. I expected a little bit more of them given their form um, in the the J League this season. For whatever reason, they've never been able to translate their form domestically onto. The continent. Um, I think, if my maths is correct, a win against Shandong this week will see them through, regardless of the other results, because their head-to-head against Shandong um, will be um, will be significant. That would see them jump um, above them, so they'll either finish first or as as one of the best runners up. But um, they they would have thought probably they would have had it wrapped up by uh, by this point. Um, so it's been a little bit of a disappointing campaign. Sure has. Hey, Paolo, we've got to let you go. Thanks as ever. Great insight. We'll speak to you next week, mate. Thanks, Paul. Cheers, guys. The great Paul Williams with Football Asia. Broski, we're out of here, mate. Where are you this weekend? Uh, back at Allianz. Sydney are playing MacArthur in a big game. Back in your hallowed grounds <laughs> with your adoring fans. Saw you signing autographs and doing selfies there on Saturday night. Sure, there'll be more <laughs> of that this weekend. I've got the Mariners against Western and Adelaide Brisbane this weekend in the A-League men's. Uh, all those games, of course, live on Paramount+. Plus and the global game will be back on SEN next Tuesday night, same time, same place. See you then. Thanks for listening.